If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 14. The text is also printed in the next page of the bulletin for you. <clears throat> We're skipping merrily through the Psalms now. All these happy Psalms. Uh, learning how to use them. How to use them rightly, as God intends. Uh, how to use them in our life with God. So what are the Psalms? What are they for? How are, we to, how are we to make use of them? That's what we're talking about over the course of the whole series. Uh, but they're God's Word. They're God's Word, a Word that's come to this world from the outside. They're God's Word written for us so that we would make them our own words, so that we'd make them our own songs, our own prayers. Prayer, as uh, is commonly defined, is talking with God, right? Talking with God. It's entering into conversation with the God who has first spoken to us. He's the one who has the first word in the conversation. He's made himself known to us, and we respond. We respond to him in prayer. But we don't intuitively know how to respond to God, how to pray, what our part in the conversation should be like. What does it look like for humans being in this world, to live in conversation with God, to live in prayer. Personally, I am not the epitome of a human being at prayer. Um, my instincts about prayer are all wrong. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. I don't know why to pray. Which is why the Psalms are often so difficult for me to use. You get into the Psalms, you realize this is supposed to be very devotional material. I'm supposed to really resonate with everything that's going on here and take these up as my prayers to God. They're hard for me to use because my instincts about, wrong, uh, about prayer are all wrong. God speaks these Psalms to us so that we will speak them back to Him. But I have to learn. I have to learn how to use them because they're, it's almost like they're a foreign language. So I have to learn... From God, I have to learn actually from, from the only one who really knows how to use these psalms. I have to learn from the one who actually is the epitome of a human being at prayer. I have to learn from the one whose instincts about prayer are all right, who knows how to pray, who knows what to pray, who knows why to pray exactly as God intends. I have to learn from one who lives always in conversation with God. I have to learn from one who responds perfectly to how God has made himself known for relationship. That human being at prayer. I have to learn from him. So we all have to learn from Jesus. We all have to learn from Jesus how to pray. We have to learn from Jesus how to use the Psalms. We have to learn from Jesus how to make God's word our songs and our prayers. We need to hear Jesus as the singer, as the one who is praying the Psalms. And we need to enter into his praying of them. So let's keep that in mind as we read and consider Psalm 14 this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us to read this psalm in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. 
The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, um, the Psalms are usually, each one of them, sort of designated to fit inside of a certain category. It's a certain type of Psalm. This Psalm is a prophetic Psalm. To help you understand what that means, uh, you, you might tend to think as, uh, of prophecy. Think of that word in the English language as general usage by people in the world today, we might tend to think of prophecy as declaring the future. But in the Bible, uh, prophecy can include declaring the future, but really prophecy is God's declaring all reality to us, which we wouldn't know apart from his, his declaration. Right? A nifty way to remember this is that prophecy is not just foretelling so much as it is forthtelling, telling forth. God's Word, with clarity, speaking the truth about the way things really are, speaking the truth about reality. Sometimes, most of the time, that's a present reality. Sometimes that's a future reality. But it's speaking the truth about reality when it is apparent that we have not understood the truth about reality. So this is a prophetic psalm, and it's a wisdom psalm. It's into that category, too, for, written for our instruction and it's also a lament, because the lack of true wisdom in the world, I mean, it's a psalm about fools, the lack of true wisdom in the world is lamentable, and not just to us, it's lamentable to God. So this psalm is a lament. Psalms 14 and 53, um, which are almost identical as you read through them, if you ever read through them side by side, you'll see there's so much language that is exactly the same. Uh, psalms 14 and 53, they begin in exactly the same way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Maybe you've read those words before. Maybe you've heard those words before. Maybe they're familiar to you. If you're like me, uh, you've heard these words before. You've probably assumed when it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, that that is um, a statement about atheists. And it basically means all atheists are fools. On a very simple level, that would be bad logic. That's not what this is saying. More importantly, it's not a good reading of the psalm. It just wouldn't be a good, uh, faithful reading of this scripture. It does say, basically, when he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It does say, basically, all fools are atheists. But you can't just flip that around and say, all atheists are fools. Not, not logically, right? Not technically. But that does seem to be a common reading of this verse, a common reading of the psalm, that it's, it's just basically condemning the thinking and the behavior of um, not, not God's people, 
the philosophical atheists who are opposed to God's people directly. Philosophical atheists, that's who's being condemned, right? Those who would consciously argue against the existence of God. Those whose creed, if you will, the word creed comes from Latin credo, you know, um, I believe. Uh, they believe there is no God. They believe something. They believe there is no God. <clears throat> but Psalm 14 isn't meant to be an insult to philosophical atheists out there. Actually, the Apostle Paul sees it as applying to everybody. And it's got to include people in here. It's got to include all of us. It applies to everybody. When, when Paul is making his famous biblical case in his letter to the Romans, which we've mentioned already in the liturgy, the case that he's making, he's building it from Scripture. He's showing how from Scripture he traced throughout Scripture um, uh, to indict everyone with sin, to say that everyone is a sinner, he uses Psalm 14. In collation with other Old Testament passages, he's using Psalm 14 very prominently to indict everyone with sin. He says in, in Romans chapter 3, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both religious people and the, the, the pagans, the heathens, the barbarians, the um, people who worship different gods, We've already charged that all are under sin, as it is written, quoting Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, not even the religious people. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Not even the people in church. When we read this psalm, we have to confess the fool's heart is our own. That's what we're being called to. We have to say, along with this psalm, not just they are corrupt, we are corrupt. We are corrupt, none of us does good. When the psalmist speaks about the fool who says there is no God, he's talking about everybody, universally. That's what Paul picks up on and uses it in his argument. <clears throat> He's talking about everybody, religious and non-religious alike. Whatever your official position is, however you argue when you get into the debate between a, uh, a philosophical atheist and a, a believer or whatever, whichever person you are, whatever your official position is on the existence of God might be, we're the ones who are fools who say there is no God. That's us. When he says here, basically the psalmist says, all fools are atheists, He's giving a sort of a biblical definition for foolishness, isn't he? He says, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, foolishness at its heart, the heart of somebody who is a fool according to the scripture, at its heart is atheism. So we're not <clears throat> talking about the world's measure of foolishness, which just might be measured with your IQ or something. We're talking about what God says is foolish. God is the one who tells us what foolishness is. Proverbs chapter 1, uh, also Proverbs chapter 9, also Psalm, um, I think it's 111. God says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom and, and foolishness are set against each other, right? <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Relationship with God, where you treat him as God. That's the beginning of not foolishness. 
of wisdom. So it only makes sense then that the opposite of that, the heart of folly, is not fearing the Lord, not treating God as God. So like in the garden, when it came down to the the tree of wisdom, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the key was whether humanity would regard God as God, whether humanity would regard God's word as true, and regard it and not disregard it. Because disregard and disbelief of who God is and what he's said, how he's made himself known to us, disregard of that resulted in the first great folly, first great foolishness of our race that's infected all of us since then. So what's going on inside the heart of a person, as Psalm says, what's going on inside of our hearts, but the heart of a person who is a fool according to God is not not necessarily philosophical atheism, but practical atheism. Practical atheism. The fool might not be a philosophical atheist. The fool might be, philosophically, a believer. But whatever your official creed might be, whatever you might say with your lips about God, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. He lives that way in his heart. There are plenty of people who say that they believe in God. There are plenty of people who profess faith in God, who would say, I'm not an atheist, yet who are fools, according to God, when they live as if he didn't exist. So Peter Craigie, has a uh, he has a commentary on the book of Psalms. He says that biblically speaking, the fool is not simply one lacking in mental powers. Indeed, the fool may be a highly intelligent person. The fool is one whose life is lived without the direction or acknowledgement of God. And Tim Keller boils it down even more. I think he says, every sin, every sin is a kind of practical atheism. That's what this psalm is talking about. Every sin is a kind of practical atheism. It is acting as if God were not there. Every sin. I do that all the time. Psalm 14 indicts me. It doesn't just indict those bad atheists out there. When I yell at my kids out of anger, I'm living as if God were not real. And that's foolishness. When I manipulate others to get what I want, I'm living as if God were not real. And that is foolishness. When my mind is full of greed or lust, I'm living as if God were not real. When I nurse a grudge, when I get bitter and look to distance myself from other people, I'm, not living, I'm living as if God were not real. When I arrange for my own material comforts without a care in the world for others, I'm living as if God were not real. When I distort the truth in any way, when I covet anything that belongs to anybody else, when I am impatient, when I am living in self-pity, I am living as if God were not real. Anytime I break God's commandments, I'm living as if God had never made himself known to me, as if God had never spoken to me. So Paul Tripp, in his book on parenting, which we're going to talk about in our home group later, and he talks about this in the context of just parents making 
making yourself aware that foolishness like this is, is really what's wrong with your children, uh, just as it's really what's wrong with us. We've got to see that in ourselves. He says that, that foolishness is the denial of God. It's not talking about philosophical atheism. It's talking about people who live as if they don't need God, don't need His wisdom, don't need His power, don't need His presence, don't need His grace. When I tell myself that I don't need God, when God is not the center of my worldview, guess who I put there? I insert myself in the center. And that's, that's what we're doing all the time. You and me and our children and our parents and our friends and everybody. So it says, continuing in verse 1, they're, they're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. Corrupt. The, the true God, He's made Himself known. He's the God of love. He's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whose triune life consists of pouring Himself out in love for the sake of the other. That's what His life is. And He's made us to be like that too. He's made us in His image to love one another, like He does, and to be in relationship with Him and with each other, characterized by our love. And when we live as if He were not the heart of reality, when we live as if He were not the source of our being, as if He were not the pattern for our humanity, and not the pattern for our community, as if this God had not made Himself known to us, as if we didn't know that He was the triune God of love, as if, as if he hadn't spoken to us, when we live that way, then the only alternative, the foolish alternative, is self-love. Self-centeredness, self-love. When we live in self-love without regard to the God of love, it is a corruption. It's a corruption of our reality. It's an abominable distortion of God's image in us. And this grieves God, which is why he laments in Psalm 14. It says in verse 2 and 3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. So Eugene Peterson, uh, his, his uh, sort of translation of the scriptures, the message, um, is really helpful, I think, in a few points with this psalm. He translates these verses this way, puts it in a language that can resonate with us more. He says, God sticks his head out of heaven. He looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. One man, even, God expectant. Just one God ready woman. He comes up empty. Humanly speaking, we'd look around. We would say people can do good things. Even philosophical atheists who hate the idea of a God of love. They could be really nice. They can live a good life according to our standards for judgment. When we look and we judge, we say, yeah, people could be good. People could do good things. But God is the true judge. And his declaration is the one that matters. And he tells us something here that we would rather not believe about ourselves. And he said it early on in the scriptures. He said it ever since, just as clearly 
as he says it here, but in Genesis chapter 6, six chapters into the Scriptures, it says that he looks. What does he see? He's, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So despite what fools are believing, when they live as if God were not real, we think there is no God, nobody's watching over us, nobody sees, nobody's there to judge and hold us accountable. God isn't real. Despite all of that, He is real and He knows, he knows your heart better than you know yourself. He is the one who reveals your heart to you. Prophetically. When you wouldn't understand it otherwise. He's the one who foretells reality to you. When it is apparent that you would prefer not to know the reality about yourself. God knows our corruption and what He sees grieves him to the heart. That's what he says in Genesis chapter 6. Right after he says every thought of, of his heart was only evil continually, it says that the, the Lord was grieved when he saw that. That's what it says in, in chapter 6 of Genesis, and that's the tone of lament we should hear in chapter 14 of the Psalms. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? This is wrong. God intends that we would live according to the knowledge that he's given to us. He's given knowledge to us of himself. And God invites everyone, all of us fools, to call upon him, but we don't. So it's like Paul, again, back in Romans, what he says in uh, Romans chapter 1, the New Testament reading. Thanks, Jack, for that. <clears throat> God has made himself known in his creation, in everything that he's made but we've rejected him. That's what's really happened. It's not just that we haven't had access to knowledge. We've rejected the knowledge that we have about God. We've suppressed the truth about him in our opposition to him. So we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, we became fools. God sees our folly. God sees our living as if he were not real. And he laments it, and he's grieved by it, and he judges it for what it is. And Tim Keller again said, uh, in the Bible, foolishness means a destructive self-centeredness. A destructive self-centeredness. You can't be self-centered and not be destructive. Even if you're trying to keep yourself centeredness just to yourself and not hurt other people, that, that, that's a lie written into the social contract where we all agree to live in our own preferred self-centered ways as long as it doesn't adversely affect anybody else. Do whatever you think is right. Do whatever's good for you. What makes you feel good and happy. Whatever's good for you, as long as it doesn't impinge upon somebody else's happiness and they're, they're good, you go ahead and do that. That's impossible. You can't do it. That's a lie. That's why this psalm talks about the, the fools eating up God's people, which is what God really laments. And the, the fools shaming the plans of the poor. You see it in verse 6. Our foolishness, our practical atheism, our destructive self-centeredness, our sin always has an effect on others 
whether you see it or not, our sin always has an effect on others and especially on those who are, are most at the mercy of others, the poor. It doesn't have to be an outright act of hostile oppression of the weak. Where you're walking down the streets of Portland and somebody asks you for, for some change and you step on their leg. It doesn't have to be that. Your godless, destructive self-centeredness where you live a life failing to love as God intended can have more subtle, insidious, cumulative, societal effects that are just as evil as stepping on that guy's leg. When even a, a nice person looks to bend their whole existence around themselves, and you put together a whole consumeristic society of people who are doing just that, a, a society that rewards and exalts the self-directed and the self-motivated and the self-sufficient you put together a society like that and you end up with a terribly broken world with great injustices. And who suffers the most? It's the people who are most at the mercy of other people. Even if you can't see it, you can't imagine it, even if you can't trace its roots, even if you can't see your place, your participation in it, that's what God says happens when we live as if he were not real. Of course you don't want to believe that that's true about yourself. Nobody thinks himself a fool. You're not sitting there thinking, I am a fool. We think we're sophisticated. We claim to be wise. And when you can't escape God telling you what you don't want to hear, when he says you're a fool, and your destructive self-centeredness has ruined the world, That's the judgment that we fear, isn't it? <clears throat> I want to believe one thing about myself, and God says something else that I can't stand to hear. So it says in verse 5, there they are in great terror. Another translator puts it this way, there they are, dreading what they dread. Eugene Peterson, the message says, night is coming for them and nightmares. Because, as Psalm 14 continues, God is with the generation of the righteous. He's with them. And implicit there is, if God is with the righteous, then God is against the fool who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. So C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, <clears throat> in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. So when you live as if God were not real, somewhere in the back of your mind is that very rational fear that if, in fact, God is real, then you're in trouble. And that's the nightmare scenario that we should all take very seriously Instead of continuing to live as if God were not real, we should take the only alternative, and that is call upon him as he inv has invited all of us to do. Call upon him. 
God says that our folly can be traced back to the lack of our calling upon him, the lack of our need for God. We believe we don't need him, and therefore we don't call upon him, as it says in verse 4. When is it easiest to believe that you don't need God? When is it easiest to live like God's reality is really irrelevant to you, it's of no, a matter of no concern to you? When's it easiest to do that? It's when you feel like you can get your own needs met to your satisfaction. All your needs are met. I've done it myself. Luke chapter 12, Jesus told the parable of the rich fool who lived that way. He lived a, a self-centered life of abundance as if God were not real and God called him a fool, the rich man. He called him a fool because he was not rich toward God. So throughout the Bible, this is in direct contrast to the poor who are painfully aware of their need. That's what defines the poor. Not just their need, but knowing their need. Knowing their need. Being painfully aware of it. In this psalm, the opposite of the fool is the poor. The one who knows his need for God, who calls upon the Lord, who has the Lord standing with him, and therefore is rich toward God. Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So because the fool lives as if God were not real, he must live in fear of judgment. He doesn't want to see God. He's had contempt for heaven and for all of its citizens. He's had contempt for God's reality and for God's image in humanity. He's ultimately had contempt for the God of love who created heaven as a place for love, a place for relationship. But the poor in spirit who calls upon the Lord possesses heaven, belongs to him. The kingdom of heaven belongs to him because the God of love is with him and the Lord is his refuge, our psalm says. So at the end of it, it says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So maybe it doesn't seem like this psalm lamenting folly this is what's wrong with the world in our hearts. We, we're fools. We believe that there is no God. We, we act as if he's not real. Maybe it, it doesn't seem like this psalm's been leading to a prayer for salvation. Prayer for salvation. Maybe you thought the big application at the end would be a, a really loud shout. Stop being fools. Sort yourselves out so you stop living as if God were not real. Maybe that's what you thought would come at the end. But here it is. Israel, that's God's people. That's us. We need salvation. We need him to be our refuge. We need God's spirit to regenerate us. Because it says he's with the generation of the righteous. It doesn't just mean he's with the people who live within a certain 50 years uh, who are righteous. He's with that group of people. It means he's with their becoming. He's with their generation. Is with their regeneration. We need God's Spirit to do that, to make us a generation of the righteous, to, to give us the new birth. So we become something that we weren't before. We need Him to do that. We need 
to call upon the Lord despite our basic nature as fools, despite that being against every fiber, fiber of our sinful human nature, we need to start calling upon the Lord. We need whatever it is going on in Zion to come out to people like us. Oh, that salvation would come for us out of Zion. We fools need to be saved from ourselves. Can't just learn something new, change our behavior, and then it'll be all right. We need to be saved from ourselves. God has made himself known to us. God has spoken to us, and we do need to live in that knowledge. But we need to be delivered from ourselves. Otherwise, we'll just go on suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, ignoring the knowledge of God that we have. We need to be delivered from our, from our self-centeredness, <clears throat> our destructive self-centeredness. We need to be delivered and rescued from it and made to live with God and to live with his people in true love, something that is against our very nature. And the good news is that salvation that we need, it has come out of Zion. Jesus Christ is the only one who can truly pray this psalm. That's been true for so many psalms. Jesus Christ is the only one who can say they when he's speaking of fools who are corrupt. He's the only one who shares God's heavenly perspective, who's looked down out of heaven at all of us. And seeing the universal corruption of humanity, he's the only one who, who, along with God, truly grieves our folly, truly laments it, knows what it is. Jesus Christ is the only one who lives with constant reference to God. He's the only human being who always does that, who responds perfectly to how God has made himself known for relationship. Jesus Christ always lives as a human Believing God is real and living like that. Jesus Christ took pity on us, even in our practical atheism, all the ways that we disregard and disbelieve God. He took pity on us, and he asked his Father to forgive us because we're fools who don't know what we're doing. We live as if we have no knowledge. He asked, he asked God to forgive us. Our mediator did that. Jesus Christ gave himself up to be devoured by evildoers like bread. Just tore him apart. He became the poor who was shamed by the fools. Who's, the fools whose self-love had made the world a place for crosses, for death. So when you call upon Jesus Christ, the humble cry of the needy for help, for salvation, for deliverance, for something you can't do for yourself in your relationship with God, you're calling upon the Lord. When you see yourself as the poor in spirit, you see yourself as the spiritually bankrupt, impoverished toward God, apart from his mercy, then Jesus is your refuge. God is with you. And in him, heaven is yours and you're rich toward God according to his immeasurable riches in grace, which are found in Jesus Christ. Jesus redeems fools. Jesus saves fools. That's the only kind of person that there, there is in the world for him to save and have a relationship with and reconcile to God. He does it. Your wisdom doesn't save you. Your righteousness doesn't save you. Your goodness doesn't save you. 
Any change in those things doesn't save you. He saves you. The Lord of heaven, the Lord of love, the Lord who reconciles sinners to God and makes us to dwell together. To dwell, to dwell together. And he's created the church to be this dwelling place on earth. Zion, when it says, oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Zion was the place for that. A place for God dwelling with his people. Zion was a picture of heaven on earth. Those two meeting. Because it was where God dwelt with his people. In the tabernacle, in the temple. Zion. Oh, that salvation would come out of that place. It's like heaven on earth. And now that dwelling place, it has come out. It has gone out into the world. And now the church carries Christ's salvation, God's presence, and the love of heaven. Real love. Real restored image of God in our humanity love. We carry it with us wherever we go. Just a bunch of fools. Redeemed by the only wise one. The Lord has restored our fortunes in Jesus Christ. The purpose the destiny for which we were created, to live in relationship with him and to know him and to live in light of that knowledge, to reflect his love and our love. Our fortunes have been restored from the nightmare of our folly. So rejoice and be glad. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are fools. Um, your your scripture, your word, this psalm spoken to us to be taken up even on our own lips uh, confesses that. We submit ourselves to your judgment in Christ. Um, we pray that you would help us to receive your judgment in Christ, to be the kind of people who uh, don't just turn away from your word to us, don't just ignore it, can't bear to hear it because it says things about us that we don't want to hear. We pray that uh, we would hear your word saying things that we do want to hear. The word of your grace, the word of your love, the word of Jesus Christ, who is the wise one who has redeemed us in his own humanity. We pray that uh, Jesus Christ would fill up our thoughts, that your Holy Spirit would fill up our hearts, that you would make us new. We look forward to the day when uh, it would not be said of us again that we are fools because we've lived like you're not real. We pray that that day would come quickly. We pray that we would be able, uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to believe that Jesus has given himself for us, even for fools like us, so that we can have a relationship with God, so that we can know you as you've made yourself known to us, so we can live responsively, uh, trusting in you and following you. We pray that you would uh, wipe away this foolishness from our hearts and fill us up always, now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.